John chapter 11, as we carry on in our series in John's Gospel, um, we have two more chapters after this, 12 and 13, and then uh, Robert Murdoch is going to take us uh, to a couple of the Old Testament prophets as we prepare for Christmas and Advent, but we'll conclude our series on John. It's been really striking, I think, as we've encountered um, powerful, powerful Jesus and seen all sorts of reactions uh, to him. And there is no more powerful chapter in the Bible than this one, John chapter 11. It's worth, um, before we read it, uh, we're going to read half of it, and then we'll study it together. If you're not a Christian, what you're going to hear now is an eyewitness testimony of events that happened. And I think a lot of people who aren't Christians, and I was in that category to struggle with the plausibility of miracles because they're non-natural. I mean, they aren't natural. How can these things happen? And we can debate about, did it happen? Did Jesus feed 5,000 people? Or was it an extraordinary miracle of generosity that he inspired people to do? But when it comes to this kind of miracle, the raising of a dead man at a funeral, and there are others like the raising of a dead child. Were these things not true, then it would be utterly scandalous to write them down so that people like you and I are lulled into thinking they're true. It'd be scandalous to write this stuff. Shocking, offensive. Just bear that in mind as we read these accounts. They just read as factual history and mighty powerful at that. Now, John chapter 11, reading at verse 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sister sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, just clock this verse. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now clock the next one even more. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so and because he loved her and him, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he did nothing. Seems strange, doesn't it? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. 
Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Mary said to, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. And when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. And so the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him. And let him go. Well, that's strong stuff. Let's pray that God will speak to us from his word. Father God, these are eyewitness testimonies of what happened. We pray that we will understand the significance of this for our own lives, our own death, our own resurrection. We pray that we'll find comfort in our circumstances, hope. An assurance and help us to really respond to the real Jesus as he is presented to us for his sake. Amen. 
Now, on the back of the service sheet, there are four simple headings that will, I hope, get us to the heart of what is happening in this extraordinary chapter in John's eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life and uh, teaching. Uh, Firstly, uh, Jesus' unexpected uh, delay. We're introduced to this family, Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. The family are well known to Jesus and they to him. They approach Jesus uh, with a request, the one whom you love is ill. Just so we're clear that Jesus did love him, verse 5, we're told that he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There is a close bond between them, as there is between Jesus and every believer, between Jesus and you. There are numerous times in John's gospel where the real Jesus confronts us with something that gently chips away at a stereotype that we may have of him, even if we have been Christians for years. Do you think of your relationship with Jesus in this way? Jesus loved and substitute your name. He loves you. Mary and Martha knew that he had power to heal the sick, and they wanted Jesus to come to Bethany and make their brother well. That's not odd, is it? He loves me. He loves Lazarus. Lazarus is sick. We want him to come and make him well. That's just normal stuff. All our instincts would suggest that Jesus set off and go to Bethany before it is too late. He says two things. Verse 4, firstly, this illness will not end in death. And there's another striking comment. He speaks prophetically about Lazarus. He speaks prophetically about every believing person, including all of you in this room who are believing people. This illness will not end in death. Or at your funeral, death will not have the last word. But the thing that strikes us in this account is Jesus' unexpected delay. Read again with me, or let me read for you verses 5 and 6. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he didn't do anything. He didn't go. He loved them, so he did nothing. Now, it's important we don't wriggle out of this. He loved them, but he did nothing. He did not go to heal him from his illness. How could that possibly be a loving thing to do? In delaying his going, he guarantees his death. And more than that, in delaying, 
Jesus put Mary and Martha into the torment of loss. What do we make of this? Now, because we know what happens in the account that Jesus will raise Lazarus from the dead, we know the delay is so that Jesus can show his glory through his resurrection power. Now, I'm going to preach on that and teach that, and that's important. But we mustn't read God's Word and avoid the reality of the real-life things that go on. They didn't know it then. They knew he was a healer with power over sickness, but that he didn't come. And they cannot understand. When he does come eventually, Martha runs out to see him, and she, verse 21, how would she have said it? Well, I don't think it's hard for us to work it out, Lord. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus hears it again, verse 32, from Mary, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's not anger against Jesus. They're just brokenhearted. They don't understand. Now, is there a principle here for us? And I thought, trying to think, is it right that we draw an application principle from this? I think so. I wrote down here, sometimes as Christians, we can find ourselves in difficult circumstances or in a crisis. I think I'd probably change the word sometimes to oftentimes, not the crisis, but the difficult circumstances, and we want Jesus to come to sort it, to take it away, to heal us or someone we love, but he doesn't. Now, it does not mean that he doesn't care, and we've got to base our confidence on that, not primarily the benefit of hindsight or retrospect in the Christian life. If I was to say to you that looking back on your life as a Christian will prove God's love and His faithfulness, I think that would be a fair thing to say. But I want to be even stronger than that, and I want you to believe this because Jesus loves you, because of what He says. We may never know, with the benefit of hindsight, why he did not come. Nor does Jesus ask us or expect us, in his absence for a time, to be joyful or stoical or false. He expects us only this, that we do not doubt His love nor His care for us. Mature Christian faith is able to accept and trust. It comes often over many years as God proves His wise purposes in and for our lives. Now, here's another question about Jesus for us. Is this the Jesus you know? Sometimes I think we think Jesus should be at our beck and at our call, but He's not. He's Jesus. And He is the Christ who sometimes delays so His glory can be revealed. 
In my experience as a minister, watching your lives and sometimes my own, the periods when Jesus does not come can lead you to a point when you can react in one of two ways. You can become cynical and doubt, or you can trust. Let me encourage you, if you are at one of these crossroads, not to conclude that Jesus does not love you or does not care. Why? Because he says to you, I love you. And trust him that in some way that you may never see, the glory of God will be manifested even through his delay. Two days pass, and then verse 7, he says to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Uh, by that he means go back to Bethany, to Mary and Martha. The reference to Judea is simply a reminder that it's dangerous to go back. And uh, Mary and Martha want Jesus to come, and he doesn't go. Then Jesus decides to go, and the disciples don't want to go. How confusing and non-neat the gospel is, how real and realistic. Uh, Rabbi, the Jews just now were seeking to stone you, and you want to go back. And then there's Thomas, we do love Thomas, said, uh, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's just go and die. That's what he says. Let us also go that we may die with him. Verses 9 and 10 are a bit confusing. I think it's just that Jesus walks in the light, therefore he's not going to trip up over his own feet, and those who walk in the darkness are going to trip up and stumble in the end. Jesus is in absolute control of this situation. Now, I'd love to spend more time on the first point there and go round and back on this and tell you examples of Christians, some of whom are sitting in front of me this morning, who have learned what it is to trust and to wait and to rest in Jesus. But let me say to you, it is very difficult when Jesus doesn't come. But listen to his words. I love you. Now, number two, Jesus' ministry of truth and tears. Verse 17, when Jesus came, that's uh, two days later, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, it's just such a, a powerful eyewitness account. I mean, we could piece together the different parts of the Bible that tell us about Mary and Martha, and this is exactly to character. Martha runs out to Jesus. Mary stays at home. Uh, Martha 
kind of wants to give Jesus a piece of her mind. Mary wants to give uh, him a piece of her mind by saying nothing. Now, what do you make of Martha's words to Jesus? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's not angry. I think she's just distressed, confused. And even in her distress, she expresses her confidence. Verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And the dialogue that follows between Jesus and Martha that John records in the verses that follow is critical. The conversation was life-changing for Mary, and it could be life-changing for someone here now. Just notice with me what he says. Verse 23, just look at that in the Bible. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, yep, I know that. I know he will rise again on the last day. Now, just before the sermon, we sang the words, I believe, the words of the creed. I believe in life eternal. I believe in the virgin's birth. I believe in the saint's communion. I believe in your holy church. I believe in the resurrection. I believe in God the Father, Christ the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Martha's response to Jesus is a bit like saying, yes, I believe in the resurrection. It's almost as if she recites the creed to Jesus. Your brother will rise again. Yes, Lord, I know. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the resurrection. And Jesus stops her. And he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? In other words, I know that you know the creed and that you say it sincerely. But Martha, do you realize that I am the creed, that I am the resurrection and the life, and it is the difference between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth in your life? You can go a whole life on earth knowing the truth and never ever come to know the power of the truth. Because you know the creed, but you do not know the Christ. Have you gone your whole life knowing the creed, but have never come to know Christ? Can you say, I believe in the resurrection? But can you say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life? Knowing the creed will not save us. Knowing Jesus will. There is no power in the words of a creed. The power is in Christ. 
Now, how does that strike you? Are you a creed person or a Christ person? Do you believe this? Jesus asks Martha, do you realize that I am the creed and do you believe in me? And look at her answer. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, the purpose statement of John's gospel is what? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, but these miracles are written so that you may believe that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and of life in his name. And here it is in chapter 11. Martha said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, and I have life in your name. Who said you've got to wait to John 20 to become a Christian? Who said you've got to wait till you have all the answers? You will never, ever get there. Here's the Lord Jesus saying, do you believe at this funeral service that I am the resurrection and the life? And Martha says, yes. Now, what about Jesus meeting with the other sister, Mary? Verse 28, um, what happens is that Martha goes to get Mary. Come on, Mary, he's asking for you. She jumps up. She runs off to Jesus. Everybody follows her. Verse 32, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary is much less in control than Martha. She's weeping when Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, it's a very different encounter between Jesus and Mary than the one between Jesus and Martha. With Martha, Jesus' first response was to speak truth to her to strengthen her. Your brother will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus' ministry to Martha is one of truth. The truth of who he is and what he promises the truth of the gospel strengthens her and comforts her in her grief, as it does for Christians again and again and again. But with Mary, it is different. He does not speak words to her. He is simply deeply affected by what he sees in her. When Jesus saw her weeping, he was deeply moved, and Jesus himself wept. Verse 35. In other words, Jesus' ministry to Martha was to teach her truth. His ministry to Mary was to weep. Does that surprise you about Jesus? Jesus wept is the shortest verse in the Bible and perhaps one of the most precious. I remember uh, seeing somebody who had been bereaved. They got a card from a Christian, and when they're out of the room, I like to read the cards. And... Uh, <laughs> You know the card said? It said, dear so-and-so, Jesus wept. That's it. And that's strikingly powerful. Jesus wept. I used to like reading the cards. I don't do that anymore. 
There's another little surprise. Do you realize that Jesus is a man of deep emotion? Who feels, who shares our pain, our grief, and our sorrows. And yet there is so much more to Jesus' emotion and empathy than simply crying tears with us. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Uh, the Greek there is indignant, angry, distraught, outraged at death and the destruction and the despair it brings. It is the consequence of sin. It is all that is wrong with this fallen, disordered world, that long, dark shadow that stalks every family and every person, the valley of the shadow of death, not the world God created. And Jesus wept. Now, just before we go on to the resurrection, let me just fuse together these different responses we have seen from Jesus. Jesus' ministry to Martha is to teach the truth. Jesus' ministry to Mary is tears, truth and tears. That is the kind of Savior Jesus is. He comforts us in our grief with truth. He comforts us in our grief with tears. Truth without tears would be heartless. Tears without truth would be hopeless. Hopeless or heartless. Jesus is a Savior of hope and of heart. That is the combination of Christ to the soul. And it needs to be the combination that we bear in our church life as a family. Truth such that there is hope and tears such that there is heart. There's nothing worse than a Christian funeral without tears. For it's heartless. And yet there is nothing more empty and bleak and frightening than a funeral without hope. This side of eternity, there will always be truth and there will always be tears. One of these will be absent in the new creation. Now let's move on, verses 38 to 44, to Jesus' resurrection power. Extraordinary, extraordinary description. Lazarus dead and buried. Four days he has been in the tomb. His body has already begun to decay. Mary and Martha say, Jesus, do you, what are you doing? He, he, he has been in the tomb four days. He is decaying. And Jesus, deeply moved, outraged at the, the tyranny of death and the despair it brings, shouts out, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he did. And here we are left with, it's either true or a scandalous joke. 
Are we ministers left with a mandate to stand up at a funeral service and just say this happened when it didn't? Why did he say Lazarus come out? Had he not said Lazarus, all the tombs in the graveyard would have given up their dead, presumably. Why didn't he just do that and resurrect all the... There must have been people in the crowd whose relatives were buried there. Because they would all die again. So why did he raise Lazarus from the dead? He did it to show us what will happen on the last day. To show us what Mary confessed in the creed. Yes, I believe he will be raised on the last day. To show us what spiritual resurrection means now and to show us what an extraordinary man Jesus is who brings the dead to life. Now, finally, verses 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who had scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Now that's the way the account of the raising of Lazarus from the dead ends. This council amongst the Jewish religious leaders as to what they will do with Jesus. Caiaphas, the high priest's words, are on the face of it simply a politically motivated remark about the most expedient way to deal with Jesus. It is better for Jesus to be killed than the whole nation of Israel go through political upheaval as a result of Jesus continuing his ministry. And in his words, for the wrong reason, and with the wrong motive, and without the right understanding, he prophesies of Jesus' substitutionary death 
for the people of Israel and for the people of the world. Jesus put to death that we might live. The only way Jesus will become the resurrection and the life is by dying himself. He destroys the grave by being put in the grave. He destroys death by dying. He destroys sin by being made sin. It is the nature of substitution, the basis upon which he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, we are in John chapter 11, perhaps one of the most powerful chapters in John's gospel. We have walked through chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 this term. And there's a, a kind of dynamic going on as we do so. John said in his prologue, Jesus is the light of the world. He will come into the darkness, the darkness of the world and the darkness of the human heart. And he will shine. It's a convicting light. It's a drawing light. It's a beautiful light. It is a searching light. And darkness will seek to overcome the light. But it can't. And the light shines. And that is true on a global scale. It is true on a personal level. The light shines into a life. And all our natural human instincts are to put out the light. But thank God that for many of us, and perhaps for you at last now, the light has its course and shines and will never, ever, ever, ever go out. I pray and hope with all my heart that there will be tears at our funeral and yours. Otherwise, it would be heartless. But even more, I pray and hope with all my heart there will be truth at your funeral. Otherwise, it will be hopeless. Let's pray. Father, help us to heed these marvelous truths. Great passages in Scripture. Help us to listen to Jesus' words. Help us to listen to his claim that he is the resurrection and the life. Help us not to be creed people, but Christ people, living Christians who know the power of the resurrection life at work within us. And all this we ask. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.